For this episode of Coffee with Closers, I'm sitting down with Sangram Vajre, a Wall Street Journal best-selling author, keynote speaker, as well as the co-founder of Terminus, an ABM platform for B2B marketers. Sangram is an expert on go-to-market strategy and creating a category to dominate the marketplace. Stay tuned for my conversation with Sangram where he shares practical advice for B2B marketers on how to build a very strong and successful brand. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Coffee with Closers, where business leaders share insights on how to build businesses from the ground up and best practices for innovating in their industry. Hey, Sangram, I'm super excited to have you join me for this episode of Coffee with Closers. Happy New Year, man. Excited to be here with you. I am super excited as well. So obviously, you know, you have accomplished a lot in your career. You're an entrepreneur. You co-founded Terminus. You've written three books um, and just recently published a brand new book called Move. Uh, You've kind of coined the term ABM and actually started basically evangelizing the whole world about Flip the Funnel. I mean, you name it. There's been a lot of accomplishment um, from you uh, came in the last, you know, the probably the last decade. So of all the things you've accomplished, what's the one thing that you're super proud of? Oh man, well, let me first of all, just share a couple of things on this one. I did not coin the ABM term, although I do, I did evangelize it. I think ABM was coined in by ITSMA in like the 90s or 2004, but it never really caught, you know, um, any kind of traction. And so by the time we launched 2015 Terminus, you know, I didn't realize that they had this phrase, but in me, that's the way it, it made sense to me coming mm-hmm. out of Pardot and Salesforce. So that, so I just took it and, and made it and, and, you know, and, and the things followed. So I'm very grateful for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you think about like being proud uh, of things, I think, uh, John Maxwell once said, you know, if you, if you want to impress people, talk about your accomplishment. Uh, but if you really want to impact people, talk about your failures. So I'll, I'll tell you the, the real big, there, there were moments where we felt like Terminus wouldn't make it and we didn't have money in the bank for more than a couple of weeks. And somehow we made it. Uh, the first 20 or so no's in the company uh, for when we were trying to tell people, hey, this is account-based marketing. They're like, what? Account-based what? Like mm-hmm. they've never heard about it and we are convincing them and we got tons of no's. So we continue to change our pitch and never our optimism around the problem really never went away. That led mm-hmm. us to to close some of the early de- deals. And then when the first one, I still remember Gretchen Weaver who who said, "Yeah, send me the send me the uh, you know paperwork." And I'm like, "Yes." And I searched online, like, "How do you send paperwork?" Like, because <laughs> no idea how to do that. Never done that before. So those were the days, and those were the things that really make it fun and interesting. After that, it's it's all ups and downs along the way. But I think the early days of building something out of nothing and cre- having the optimism that there's a better way and a better way to do things um, has always been one of the most fun experiences for me. That's awesome to hear. Well, there's been a lot of transition in your career, right? So I don't know how many people know you have, you have a computer science degree background, but then you are this marketing guru talking about, you know, creating categories and how to go, how to build a go-to-market strategy for, you know, fast-growing SaaS companies. So how did this transition from, a, you know, a computer science grad to a marketer? Oh, you, you know, the friends, I, I did my master's from Alabama where in computer science, as you pointed out, uh, my my fellow computer engineers at that time will tell tell you and everybody listening that I was a tremendously bad coder. 
So they, they, it's funny in the master's program, if anyone who's done master's would know that there's a ton of electives, so you mm -hmm. could just elect different things. And so I was just signing up for projects and every time I'll sign up for a project, they will make me the presenter and uh -huh. they will do all the coding. So mm -hmm. I always thought, whoa, that's amazing. I get to present. And I said, hey, how can I help? No, no, you just create the PowerPoint deck and tell the story. <laughs> and, and, and I'm like, but I can help them. No, no, no. And I always thought that was a compliment for me, uh -huh. like that I was an amazing presenter or something. But later on, a few years later, when we got together, they told me that, let, let us tell you the truth. You were a fine <laughs> presenter, but you were really a bad coder. And, and, but because of that two years of me being and telling the story and fine, because that's all I was doing, uh, it made, made me a better storyteller about what are we doing, why we do, and how this can change. Uh, and, and what's another funny thing about this, Samuel, is when you, when you don't come from the discipline that everybody is and you walk in a room full of, let's in this case, marketers, but you don't have any baggage. You don't have, I've been there, done that. You don't have like what the laws are or the rules are. You're just making things up as, as you go. I think there's a lot of credit to that and, and people don't give it a lot of credit, but I think that's, mm -hmm. that's how you break into a new industry is by not thinking the way other people thought about it in the industry. So I yeah. feel like that has helped me. I think uh, in, engage your founder and obviously he founder Marketo too. John yeah, Miller is John. a physics major yeah. and he, he's the, the marketing guru too. So I guess As a matter you don't of fact, have to. Yeah. yeah. John, John is a, is, is a good friend. We are competitor. Uh, we are compete like in a part on Marketo. He and I competed there. And then uh, obviously with Terminus and Engageo that got now acquired by demand base. So I competed again, but we did a lot of things together too. The whole flip my funnel. He spoke at every one of these events. And what's interesting about John is you're right. He's a physics major. So he's really good at data. And I felt like, he, so he and I always talked about, he's great at data. I'm great at story. And we somehow are able to continue to do what we get to do. That's awesome to hear. Well, then from there, you know, you actually went to uh, part out, like you said, worked at Salesforce because of the acquisition and you became a marketer. And then all of a sudden you decided to leave part out to go find this new company called, uh, you know, Terminus. So how did, being a marketer ended up being a co-founder of a tech company. What was that transition? Oh, that like? was a, that was, that was a good, uh, good number of years ago where, you know, I, when the Salesforce acquisition happened, I wanted to stay at Salesforce for a couple of years because I wanted to see how this big machine works. Like, you know, it's one of the iconic brand. People are going to continue to write papers on it for decades to come. So uh, when I was at Salesforce, there was a point where we hit every number in the marketing book, right? We hit, the number of downloads, number of leads, number of uh, uh, webinar uh, attendees and all that. And I remember my head of sales coming to me and saying, Sangram, you guys did phenomenal last quarter. That was great. Uh, but for the next quarter, can you generate 3,000 more leads? And I'm like, we just generate a massive amount of leads. Like, why are we not talking about pipeline velocity? Why are we not talking about expansion here? Why are we not talking about con better conversion rates? Why are we talking about more leads? That doesn't make any sense. And, mm -hmm. and, but that was the machine and, you know, as like it or not, like Salesforce is a machine. And that really, mm -hmm. really, quite frankly, pissed me off because I felt like mm -hmm. I was no better than a coin operated lead machine. Mm -hmm. And I felt like they, I, I felt that pinch in my stomach where like, this is not right. Like that's, I'm better than this. The team is better than this and marketing is better than this. So that led me to, to start searching for like, what, is there a better way to address this, this whole idea of business of marketing, as opposed to just, just marketing, uh, when salespeople mm -hmm. tell them you, you dance, like, you know, how do you, how do you change that? 
And so I met my other two co-founders, Eric Spad and Eric Vass, the original founders of Terminus, at an event who started Terminus with the idea that they can target email advertising uh, to any mm-hmm. email addresses. And I was like, well, could you do it for B2B? And they're like, well, we have mm-hmm. never really thought about that. I'm like, what if mm-hmm. we did this and we spent like a whole day on a whiteboard? And I thought I might mm-hmm. join them as an advisor or something like that. And they said, hey, you, you clearly are very passionate about it. Why don't you come and sell? I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm not coming like to sell anything. They're like, no, no, you come in as a co-founder, come in as a CMO, um, and you sell this thing. And you know that that was like literally calling me out, like, hey, if you really believe in it, like, why don't you do it? And I came home. I talked to my wife about it, and we just had our second baby. And uh, this wasn't a great conversation to have, like, hey, leaving Salesforce doing this. Uh, but she did look at me and say, look, if you don't do this, I know you're going to regret. So how about this? I'll go find a job. You do this thing, but make sure this thing has legs. In one year, if this thing does not have legs, you're going to go find a real job. Hmm. To me, that was a turning point because from there on, I have committed to these people. I've committed to my wife. I've committed to the family. So the whole year, 2015, that's why we did. I wrote a book in 2015 on ABM to establish Hmm. the category of it. I wrote, I, we did four flip my funnel events and bringing people in on a common problem so that we can build this category uh, out mm-hmm. there uh, because there was like every day was a time time bomb, right? Like if, if, I, if this didn't work, we wouldn't have any opportunity. I wouldn't have an opportunity to try it again. So this was my opportunity. This was what my wife was working every day for. So it, it really all came back to that particular pivotal moment where I had to make a decision and the decision was, was you know, it was a really tough one. Yeah. See, the thing is, looking back, everyone is going to look at that success. You know, you t- you open with that quote from John Maxwell. You're right. You're talking about your failures versus your your success, right? I think you know most people looking from the outside, Terminus became extremely successful, created a category in 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 some sense on the ABM sector. Uh, sector. You've done those events, which I've that's essentially where I met you at Chicago when you came, and John Miller was also a speaker there, right? And all of those things, but I actually was hinging on this one decision that you made. Well, I'm going to go all in on this idea, right? Like I think as entrepreneurs, oftentimes people see the success of someone's business and career, right? Now you're just an evangelist going around talking about this concept and, you know, talking about your books, but there was a lot of sacrifice that went into, right? Taking on this challenge of being a co-founder. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. And and there is also that there is no overnight success if, and everybody has to define their own way of success. Like there's no way you and mm-hmm. me and every, you know, everyone has to have their own definition of success. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But but I feel like ultimately no 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 matter what it is it's never overnight it's over a decade or if not decades where you actually get to a point where things make it and at the same time most of it is also just a decision a decision in life that you make at a certain point and for me as you rightly pointed out that was it that was a decision mm-hmm. made like this is not a side job this is not an advisor gig. I'm jumping in, I'm leaving a cushy job, opportunity, equity, stock, options, all that stuff to go something like this when I have a second baby just born and my wife who wasn't working had to go to work. Like that's not the perfect moment, to, you know, it's crazy. But that was the moment I felt like I was called to do and we did it and I'm so grateful for that. Um, but yeah. that a lot of times it's, it's like people wait too long for the best opportunity. There is no such thing. 
Yeah, most certainly. And I think some, timing is now. You know, I think the, 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 the proverb, I don't know if it's a Chinese proverb, when is the best time to yeah. plant a tree? That was like 20 years ago, yep. right? So talking about it, you know, five years later, it's a, a missed opportunity. It's not a, a smart thing. Obviously, you mentioned you've written a bunch of book, obviously, about ABM. And the most recent book is, is The Move, right? The Four Questions Go-To-Market uh, Framework. Uh, so I'm pretty sure at the beginning of the year, most people are probably planning or even revising their marketing strategy or they've had a go-to-market strategy. They're thinking about, you know, are we even, you know, do we even have the right strategy? What are some practical advice that you would have, whether it be from the book or from your own experience having built multiple companies? Um, what, what are some practical advice you have for uh, marketers about a go-to-market strategy and what are some of the things you incorporate in it? Oh, yeah, totally, man. I feel like go-to-market is like the most fun uh, project, mm -hmm. uh, I guess. I look at all my books as projects. Uh, because that, you start and a finish, you put something together and put it out in the world mm -hmm. and, you know, hopefully the world receives it well. Uh, but the go-to-market was most fun because the early two books, as you said, were more ABM-centric, which was all about ABM and how ABM and case studies and stories about that. But I didn't realize when we started writing about go-to-market, oh my God, there's not a single company in the world that will say, I don't need go-to-market. I don't need to get better at go-to-market. Like every company... Every executive meeting that ever happens talks in some way, shape, or form about go-to-market. They may not even use the word go-to-market, but they're talking about go-to-market, meaning, mm -hmm. oh, we need to go, go open a new office somewhere, or we need to acquire a company, or we need to partner somebody, or we need to hire uh, a great person. Like, you're really talking about how are you building a go-to-market, high-performing go-to-market mm -hmm. team, uh, process, strategy, all that together. So it's like part of every executive meeting. And when I interviewed Brian Halligan, who's the CEO of HubSpot. Now, now he's the chairman up there. I remember he saying this, Samuel, so clearly that really changed my learning of it. And again, every book I write, I become a student of it before. Uh, I don't go with a preconceived notion of what I know. I'm like, okay, this is a big topic. Let's just ask CEOs, VCs, CMOs, CROs, and we interviewed 50 plus people, even uh, uh, not just Brian Halligan, but Scott Dorsey, who was the CEO of Exact Target. Uh, since you and I have crossed paths over there, uh, Jeffrey Moore, who wrote Crossing the Chasm. So interviewed all of this. Then Christopher Lockett, you know, everybody in between. And what was interesting was Brian said, uh, Brian Halligan said to him, he owns go-to-market. And I'm like, wait a minute, you mm -hmm. as a CML owns go-to-market? That makes no sense. He's like, no, no, no. This is, there are only three things as a CEO I own. A vision for the company. So I have to tell that to the investors, to uh, to my team, to uh, to the partners, to everybody in the marketplace. That's number one. Number two, culture. I'm going to hire the right people. And number three, something that nobody talks about is go to market. And he said, nobody else have the amount of inputs a CEO typically has about all these decisions that are related to go to market. So it was really interesting and eye-opening for me, like who owns go to market? So when you think about a marketer, who might be listening to this and saying, well, what is my role in this? Well, marketer, you have the most amazing role to play in this because marketing gets to surface all of these ideas and problems and challenges and metrics and data points that could say, hey, here are what we need to do and really need to facilitate that. I call marketers the galvanizers in the move book who can galvanize the idea. They can bring people together because marketers are strategic. They're thinking about it. They're not month in and a month out like sales have to be. They have to be very mm -hmm. strategic about the what is the future of the company. So they are the best uh, next step for a CEO to go and think strategically. So if you're a marketer, your job is mm -hmm. to help the company figure out what the next move is. And that's really what the book is about because the move really stands from a framework 
of market mm -hmm. operations, velocity, and expansion. And it helps companies to think about how do you figure out your next move, regardless of the stage you're in. Mm -hmm. So obviously, you know, I think in your book and all, all around the conversation, you talk a lot about also just the, you know, the concept of creating category, but that's not is something that every company can do, right? Because I think, you know, you got to have the, the right leadership who believes in creating a category. And also you have to be in a category where it could be created, right? But if you're in an established and mature company and playing in a, in a, in a, in a, in a field, that's not going to be the, the story for them. So what recommendations do you have for companies that you, they may never create a category, but where do they have the fine balance of, you know, acquiring customers, you know, building brand awareness and at the same time, you know, building, uh, you know, capturing existing demand? What advice do you have for those marketing leaders and business leaders there? That is a, a very hard question. Uh, and the reason is because almost everybody wants today to build a category. And as you rightly pointed out, it, every time I uh, am advising a CEO or a board or a, or a VC firm around this, they say, like, I remember, this is the conversation I had like a few weeks ago. The CEO said, hey, I think we're going to build a category. I'm mm -hmm. like, okay. Um, and this is the company I'm advising. And I'm mm -hmm. like, why do you think so? Well, I think we have the best product. I'm like, that's exactly mm -hmm. the reason you should not build a category. Like, what mm -hmm. are you talking about? I'm like, if you are in love with your product, you will never mm -hmm. be able to build a category. Category is about problems, not about products. Very hard concept as an entrepreneur for me to, to, to because I'm obviously an entrepreneur, so I'm not saying from a theory perspective, it's very hard for entrepreneurs to call their baby ugly and say that, well, that product, you know, is because is, you know, they build a lot of times the CEOs, the founders and engineers. A lot of times the CEOs and founders are people who have experienced the problems that believe in it so much. But a lot of times they get so much in love with the product that they forget to love the problem they solve. So categories mm -hmm. is about loving the problem and the product mm -hmm. will evolve. The set of products will evolve. And, and mm -hmm. the companies that fall in love with the product are worst case scenarios for them is to say, hey, I want to build a category. So this is the CEO saying, my product is the best. So I want to build a category. And like, no, you probably could build a great customer base and those customers will love you, and that's great. But you can never build a full-on category because that will require you to think differently. Case in point, Salesforce built Dreamforce. HubSpot built Inbound. You know, Gainsight built Pulse. Terminus built Flip My Funnel. Like you can start seeing the commonalities between all category leaders is that they look at the community, they give that a different name, they allow it to own owned by the, the people in the community and never overlay their own thing on top of it. So there are so there are there is a blueprint to this in many ways. And if you say somebody to see a hey, go build a build an put an event together. The first thing they will say is that, hey, let's put our logo in the big. Let's make sure every lead is here. And let's make sure I'm doing the keynote. That's the exact opposite of what all of these companies do. So to your point, if you are in a, if you are making a decision of do a category, just understand it's very different to your point. And hopefully these examples help. And if you're not, and you recognize that you are in a category already, I think this is where the go-to-market conversation becomes really, really important. Category creation is a choice, 100%. Go-to-market is not. Every company needs go-to-market. A company can choose to be or not try or be in an existing category or create a new category, all of that. But no matter what it is, even if you are creating, creating a category, you have to learn the principles of how you take your product to market or process to market. And that's why I feel I'm so excited about the book.
Yeah, and I think also when you brought up the the story of like a HubSpot, I think you may kind of outgrow your category over time. It seems as though, right? Because HubSpot did you know invent the inbound marketing you know methodology and also was an inbound marketing software. Now they're more like a platform more than a, a just a software design just to do inbound marketing. So I think there might come a time where the company becomes so big that it might just spread into a couple of different categories. Almost it seems like. Well, what's interesting about that is I'm so glad you brought that up. Is that that happened to Salesforce too. They started with sales and now they're marketing cloud. And that's what the whole exact target acquisition was all about, as you know, and, and service cloud and customer cloud and community cloud and Heroku and all that stuff. Same thing with inbound. They start with marketing for SMB and, and, uh, and just agency owners all the way to now uh, marketing, customer success um, and all rev ops and all of that stuff right now. Uh, so you see that happening all the time. And the, the only reason, and it really mm -hmm. doubles down on this idea, the only reason that's possible is because they fell in love with the problem, not the product. Mm -hmm. They didn't care if the marketing product or the sales product didn't work. What they cared about is that the, the problem that they're solving for their customers are, is getting solved. So it allows mm -hmm. them to have the flexibility that, oh, that's not working. So let's create a new product. That's not working. Let's just acquire a new product that might help. So they were always obsessed with the idea of like, how do we help our community grow and, 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 and add customers to be excited and never ever really made the product as the most important thing. Now the byproduct of all of it is that your product does become really, really important. And that's the, but that's the byproduct, not the main reason. That makes sense. Obviously we marketers care a lot about ROI, right? And I think that's, that's, you know, I mean, the, you you talked about how some of your story of you know, how marketing should be contributing to the top line revenue growth and pipeline, you know, pipeline growth and velocity and deals and all those things are important, but not everything we do in the marketing department can be directly correlated to the dollars added. So how do we as marketers and even leaders, you know, get away from that trap of having to always tie everything back to a dollar we earn from the marketing investment? Oh man, that's, that's like the holy grail of all marketing <laughs> questions, right? Like, you know, if I give you a dollar, where would you invest? And, you know, the funny thing about it is it's almost twofold. One is I don't know how many marketing teams uh, and organizations are starting to see the rise of RevOps. Um, and in the book, as well as in our own company, we have seen RevOps becoming the main center to answer questions like, like that. Like, where do I invest the next dollar? Because if you ask a marketer, they will say maybe in content or team or whatever, sales, they would say an SDR or compensation product will say about engineering and whatnot. So the RevOps person, the revenue operations probably has the most interesting point of view because they look at it just like a CEO, everything and saying, well, maybe we need enablement because we're getting more leads, but we're not creating enough customers. Maybe we need to focus on enablement, not more marketing dollars, not sales, but actually enablement of that. So RevOps is very important. So marketing should really tie themselves into the RevOps and figure mm -hmm. out how they can create that as a point of view. And the other part that will help also, and this happened to us two years ago, and it continues to happen. Uh, Manali Lee, who runs our RevOps, she comes in every Tuesday morning for our executive meeting and shares a dashboard. It's called the go-to-market scorecard and dashboard. And she shows marketing, sales, acquisition, retention, uh, product usage. I can literally see it, like product, everything, the entire go-to-market scorecard. Mm -hmm. That's where the go-to-market scorecard in the book idea really came from. So giving her credit for that. And what's interesting about that is she comes in, she gives her point of view, and then she leaves. Hmm. Like about 10, 15 minutes. And then now the rest of the 15 minutes, uh, 45 minutes or so of that meeting is about allowing every leader on that C-level executive team 
all of us to be a business leader first, specialized in marketing or specialized mm. in sales, specialized in product. So when we say we got a problem here in this area, now everybody can say, hey, you know what? As a business leader, I can see the problem. Nobody's asking who moved my cheese anymore, right? Because everybody's numbers are all already vetted by the Reva. So I think marketing, if you can become a business leader first, if you can actually have business conversations, you'll recognize that most of the conversations, they're only looking for, do you know your business? And if you, if they feel like the executive feel like, oh, marketing knows the business of it. You're not just reporting on vanity stuff, actual business of marketing, how the pipe is created, where the revenue is and how, what you can do, you would get a lot of, lot of goodwill. But if you don't know your stuff and you have just a bunch of slides that have all these vanity and number of downloads and traffic to the website and click through rates and impressions and clicks and open rates, well, that's when you lose credibility in the company. Mm -hmm. So I know you mentioned about the vanity metrics and <clears throat> all of those things that most marketers are so excited to, to report on. Uh, but I also think, you know, there's a lot like goes into making those vanity metrics happen, right? Because you got to have leading indicators that have uh, the lag measures, which is ultimately, you know, deals created and, and revenue generated, right? So the leading indicators do matter. So, uh, and I think if you, if you look at any studies, you know, most CMOs are actually saying we're going to be investing a lot more in content creation, right? It all goes into building a strong brand, creating a category, all of those things, it'll still revolve around this whole concept of content. But it's not enough to just create content. You got to figure out how do you get consumers to see the content, right? And also share and uh, engage, and ultimately, like you said, use it in sales enablement and all of those things. So, what practical, you know, advice do you have, especially for marketers, in terms of maximizing their investment into market uh, content, not just to create it, but really, really uh, increase the the likelihood of being consumed? Um, I love that question. Uh, I've just recently shared this um, on LinkedIn. And if anybody wants to DM me on LinkedIn on this one, if they like it, I'll, 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 I'll send this deck to them. Um, uh, that this whole idea that one is greater than many. I, I believe that's the mega trend for 2022 and hopefully beyond. One is greater than many. Meaning, um, I, was this, I was in this conversation with Joe Paluzzi who wrote, you know, who did the Content Management Institute and all that. And we were talking about this uh, on a in a conversation. And what was interesting about this is he's like, if you really think about it, and this is HubSpot study and all that stuff. When we say people want to invest more in content, like you, you just mentioned, the reality is 70, 80% of the people are not going to consume that content just now. Mm -hmm. And there are companies today who, who have and say, and somebody listening might be saying, oh, the, my OKR is to create two ebooks, two ebooks a month, three webinars a month, uh, you know, four XYZ a quarter and all that stuff. Like mm -hmm. the reason that's a problem is because it doesn't map to anything. What mm -hmm. I think talking to John Miller did well, and I think what we try to do well is that creating that one piece of content, that one mm -hmm. that is so incredibly good and everything points to that. So, mm -hmm. for example, John created the definitive guide to account-based marketing as part mm -hmm. of it. At, and he did that definitive guide for marketing automation when at he Marketo. was at Marketo. Marketo. That was brilliant because, you know, it was as close to writing like what I did with the book. It was as close to writing every piece of content on the website would always drive and would be a, 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 in addition to or supplementing and pointing to that one piece of content. So what happened was the most valuable piece of content that the only thing that needed to be gated was that one piece of content. You don't need to get everything else. Everything else was always free and pointing to it. 
So if I were to give an advice to somebody saying, all right, for 2022, if your OKRs look like this, I need to create X number of eBooks and X number, you need to really question all that. Doesn't matter. Create one great piece of content. It might be a definitive guide. It might be a survey report. It might be uh, a research like 2022 state of XYZ, whatever it is, get the best 10 people interviews in it and get data and research into it and then point everything to it. And if you don't have anything else gated and just have this one piece of gated content there, you actually will see people downloading it, talking about it, which means the most valuable content will be this. And then you don't, you have to get away with like, oh, 50 pieces of gated content. Nobody really cares about it. Even your own marketing team, I guarantee don't read that. So Mm -hmm. why would you expect anybody else to do it? Yeah, and I think Drift is actually t- trying to say the same thing, right? Trying to hide everything behind a form doesn't always work. And I think we all marketers all already know what's going to happen as soon as yeah. I fill that form out, right? You're going to get into somebody's SDR sequence and you're going to get hit up in you know every possible channel, right? So you're afraid of even filling out a form. But yeah. I think it, the energy should be invested in creating really useful content that's going to benefit the end customer, right? Fall in love with the problem right for the problem and, 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 and educate the market and then use that one real core piece of content that could be a, a driver for generating you know, inquiries or leads or whatever you want to call it. And you can constantly update that piece of content with new information, new data, new research, label it. And, and here's another flip idea of it. Let's say you create a state of, uh, I'll just use the state of AI just to, to pick, a, pick, a, pick, a, pick a topic there. And, and you have that. But now let's say you're targeting to financial services companies. Well, you just take the state of AI for financial services companies. You have almost 80% of the content is the same. And the top 20% or 30% of the content is now very specific to financial services companies. So mm-hmm. it's not, you, you, that's a good way to take the content and turn into multiple pieces of content where you personalize it for an industry. Uh, mm-hmm. And now let's imagine if you have 50 financial services accounts and you say that, hey, I created a state of AI, will that perform better? Or would you say, hey, I just, we, we have created a state of AI for financial services companies and then send it to them. You already know what will have a higher open rate. So I think pe- people are not taking the time to look at that one, make it so good that now you can create derivatives from it that will help you to be targeted with, if you're doing ABM, you're, you're going after a specific industry or a specific region or a specific persona. It's still the derivative of that one thing. And I think we're just spending too much time in creating new stuff as opposed to making the most out of the stuff that you already got. So I have a question in terms of from a budget standpoint, right? Yeah. So obviously you still need to create blogs. You still need to have social, you know, social content and maybe regular email and all of those things need to be there. Right. And some, some probably designed to just nurture existing contact and some is to capture. So if you're thinking about budget, just in a simple form, right. From a marketing budget standpoint, how much of your energy should be spent on the, the creating of content that's really designed to just create awareness in a brand versus capturing the existing demand and just generating inquiries and leads. I, we, and it has, it, it will move based on your conversion ratios to it. Um, and I'm a big believer that really the magic happens in the middle. If a great marketer is someone who actually focuses more on the middle of the funnel than anywhere else, because 
The enablement part, if they partner up, can help with the down the funnel. And if they have a great brand, then it will help from the top of the funnel. So if you have that mix, a great marketing team can really thrive when you have a little bit of support from top and bottom and really are able to convert more of what you're generating demand and converting more of it, right? So you're harvesting that demand, nurturing that demand, um, as opposed to always worried about net new demand. It goes back to the same conversation that I had with the... um, uh, with a sales leader at Pardot, where mm-hmm. um, Salesforce, where they said, you need to generate 3,000 more leads. We're just not asking the right questions at that point. Mm-hmm. So in many ways, it is the companies that I advise and the marketing teams I work with, I'll always in, in not want to give them like, oh, you need to do 70%, 30%. There are the non-negotiatives are the fact that you cannot have 100 pieces of content that are unique. You need to have one, maybe two pieces of content that is unique. Everything else supports that. That is, and if, believe it or not, that's actually going to cut your budget down. It's actually going to make your budget super efficient. All of a sudden, you don't need three content people. You don't need to do content syndication. You don't need to do all that stuff. You now are known for it. Case in point, Gong, like Udi and I've talked about this in the past where Gong looked at like, well, what is their greatest asset? the data from all the calls that they're mm-hmm. getting and collecting in the background. So what have they started to do? They collect that data and turn that into a report and say, hey, based on what we know, based on all of our customers, we know that 80% of the people talk more uh, than when, when you talk more than your salesperson, then you lose the opportunity. Like that's their data point, but it comes mm-hmm. from the same source. So you have mm-hmm. to really get good at it. So it really depends for them. It's it's. I think it's more of the harvesting the existing data and turning into it. it it's not a whole bunch more um, content wise. The initially I used to think I need to spend more money on creation. Now I feel like the creation is really thirty percent or less. Is seventy percent is really distribution, creating more emphasis on getting back to this thirty percent. Um, less creation, but better creation. Are there any practical advice for that distribution aspect of it? What has been, you know, seen, you've seen working really well for the companies that you advise or you obviously, you know, part. I think we should, yeah. And most companies do it so bad, man. Mm -hmm. So bad. This is the part where you need to turn more people in your company and your customers into evangelists. Mm -hmm. Like I, as a co-founder, I took on that role because I felt like if you don't talk about it, about the problem, not the product. Like you've seen my post, like you probably in the last one year, you may have seen maybe three posts on Terminus, right? Like it just, you know, like they already know I'm like, they can see it on LinkedIn. I don't need to say, but if you're doing really cool stuff, you acquired a company, I mean, I obviously share about that, but I'm sharing learnings about what I'm learning at my company. I'm sharing uh, about what's happening in the industry. So I want to be a value add to the organizations and people outside uh, Mm -hmm. the company. If we can, if more companies can encourage that, almost incentivize that, hey, salesperson, if you're, let's say you're a sales company mm-hmm. uh, and you sell to salespeople, right? Uh, so every one of your salesperson should be talking about day in the life of a sales life. Hey, today, mm-hmm. this is what I learned. Hey, to, hey to, uh, you know, we had a great conversation today and now we're going to change our, uh, our pitch deck. Like stuff mm-hmm. like that, where people can be part of your story People mm-hmm. galvanize to that because we all know people buy from people. So I, I feel like if we can figure out a way for people to be more of more act, start acting and incentivizing them to be more of an evangelist for it, that will help their personal brand. But more importantly, people don't know this, but it will actually help their business brand. I've closed 
$100,000 plus deals on a podcast after a podcast because of the relationship that I don't think I would have even been able to get into it with no matter how many cold emails and calls I might have done. So mm. people miss on that. Yeah, definitely. Brand, you know, it, it builds a, a strong brand equity and the trust factor that comes with it, right? Like the, you're not you're not this sneaky sales guy always trying to sell, right? And you're, yeah. you're obviously adding adding value. So talking about community and 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 providing value, you have something called Peak Community. You want to talk a little bit about what that is and and what that uh, means for CMO and CMOs and you know marketing leaders. Yeah, appreciate you you letting me share that. So, I, you know, Judd uh, and I started that right in the middle of the pandemic because we are we love building communities and we like I flip my funnel all that stuff. But it flipped my funnel became like hundred thousand plus people, so it just became too big and and all kinds of people, marketing, sales, vendors, everybody was there. So I felt like there wasn't really anything for marketers where marketers can geek out on marketing things, but really help them learn the business of. Mar- Marketing, excuse me. Like nobody was talking about business of marketing. Everybody was uh, talking about tips and tricks and hacks and this. I'm like, no, no, no. The business of marketing. Like how do you get from what is the difference between VP and a CML? How do, you, um, how do you present to a board? How do you look at financials? How do you build a relationship with a CFO? Uh, what are the metrics that your CRO should? And you, I mean, it's like stuff that I feel marketers need to learn in order to become that. So we just started a group where our whole goal is that we want to help more emerging CMOs become CMOs and CMOs become CEOs. That mm-hmm. is pure. That is the only function and the goal of that community. And we want marketers who want to become CMOs one day and CMOs who want to become CEOs one day. And we're bringing in VC conversations in there. We're bringing in budget conversation. We're bringing CEOs to talk about it and giving them access to do this. But this is not for everybody. This is our only for marketers who actually want to be a CMO or CEO one day. Awesome. Well, here's my last question. Obviously, the one thing we all don't have enough of is time. So I'm just curious, what is Sungrim's you know, productivity hacks? And if there's anything that you can re- share with our audience about how you manage your time and how do you get things done more efficiently? Oh, yeah. For, for me, it's still very lot of trial and error. And the days I feel like, oh, I got this, the next day I blow it, right? Like it's just the nature of it. Uh, but what I found is I keep, I've, I've made days as much as I can focused on a certain days. For example, Monday is my thinking, is the day when I have zero meetings or maybe one meeting at most. That is the day when I create stuff, think about stuff, research stuff. This is my time. This is not anybody's time but my. Tuesday, starting 8 a.m. to like 5, 5 o'clock, I'm on calls. Either I'm doing podcasts or I'm doing internal meetings. I just know that's my mind. I'm not doing context switching in it. I'm just, I know I'm not going to try to create something. I'm just going to be there available, present and focus on it. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not trying to do something for 30 minutes. I just do nothing but attend meetings or do stuff and just Mm -hmm. be busy on it. So I try to break my days of the week into creative work where I am like, Everything is switched off and I'm just in a complete research mode or understanding or learning mode. And there are days when I'm like just nonstop eight to five meetings and I'm, I'm fine. With, I've just found myself being at peace with that as opposed to mixing it up because that's when I feel like never on top of anything. Mm-hmm. So especially when you're part of an organization like Terminus and you mentioned you have Tuesday morning, like leadership calls and things like that. How, how do you make sure that those meetings all kind of fall into Tuesday is there is I mean obviously your entire organizational leadership probably need to decide that Tuesday oh, yeah. is our meeting day. 
Is that kind yeah, of Tuesday. I mean, we have as an organization, all major meetings that happen is on Tuesdays mm-hmm. uh, and Thursdays. Those are our two big days of any internal big meetings. So as an organization, we just have done it. So mm-hmm. I just aligned myself to it. It's like, okay, if this works. Monday's too hard for meetings. Like it just feels like we're ready. And then we spend all day in meeting and you're like, okay, I'm already ready for the weekend, for right? The week, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So for me, I come in Monday so energized to create something. And I feel like everybody wants to do the best work of their life. But mm-hmm. if you hit them with like seven meetings from 9 a.m., you know, the creative juices just go away. Mm-hmm. Most certainly. Well, Samgram, I really, really appreciate you sharing this uh, this time with me and sharing some of your knowledge and experience uh, and I uh, wish you all the best. And thank, thank you, you so, much. so much, Samuel. Uh, and everybody, like if, uh, if you like this, um, if you want to connect with me on LinkedIn, I'll send you a copy of the book. Just if you share with us what you liked in this conversation and DM me on LinkedIn, I will share with you a signed copy of the book. Awesome. Well, hopefully our audience will take advantage of that. Thanks again. This episode of Coffee with Closers is brought to you by One IMS, a leading digital marketing agency helping businesses win new customers. To request a free marketing ROI audit, please visit oneims.com. If you enjoyed this video, please share it. To make sure you never miss an episode, Please subscribe.